Hello, everyone. It's G3, and this week I am delighted to be joined by both Jordi Visser and Mike Edwards to discuss China and where we go from here in the wake of China's recent National People's Congress. We will also explore the impact of the growing distance in the relationship between China and the West as it relates to asset allocation decisions and money flows. And then finally, we'll talk about some of the nations and industries that stand to benefit from the West's rift with China. Trust me, you won't want to miss that. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode and stick around for this one. We are recording. It has been a long time since we have had both you, Jordy, and you, Mike, on the show together. So welcome to Green Marbles. Thanks. These are always fun. Thanks, D3. All righty. Well, let's get into it. Today we are talking about China. And the place where I'd like to begin is to just do a quick postmortem on the NPC. Mike, what were your key takeaways? I think if I had to summarize it in one word, it would be brazenness. That she's ascendancy. We called it a postmortem. Maybe it's a post vivum in this case. It was just with completely unconstrained and was with sort of bright lights around it was massively disruptive to continuity, to expectations with respect to personnel, successorship contours, everything is basically he is now ruler for life with no constraints on him. And that was while the ruler for life part was there. I think there were a number of both chime and commentators on the one hand. And then also, even though obviously the tone towards the global investment community or the tone of the global investment community towards China has deteriorated meaningfully over the last, not just year, I would say several years, those that were holding out hope for there being balance, constraint, market-friendly messaging, a bit of pragmatism here and there, most of those hopes were thrown out the window. I want to go over some specific aspects, but before we do that, I just want to ask both of you, were either of you surprised by the very strong, very assertive posture that Xi Jinping took at the NPC? I would say I was surprised in degree, not kind. And that's what I meant by brazenness. Usually there's a lot of care for the theatrics around these kind of political moments and meetings and whatever. And usually there's a nod towards, like I said before, continuity and that sort of thing. This was a case in which everything that represented the past and everything that represented constraints on or possible challenges to she, the sort of concepts of factions and things like that were completely thrown out. And not just from the standing committee, from a policy standpoint, I mean, Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, they're not even on the, in the NPC anymore. And the final point on this, I think that some of the appointments, including presumably Li Qiang as premier, represent the total victory of loyalty to Xi over every other consideration, including We'll call it meritocracy, but actually showing leadership, both experience and wins, as it were. Li Chiang was ahead of the party in Shanghai during the lockdowns, which was a disaster by any means. And he gets a promotion for that. Why? Because he did exactly what Xi Jinping commanded, as it were. So that to me is sort of where the surprise in, like I said, degree comes is there's, there was just no restraint whatsoever here. And I think people were, were really parsing for, okay, well, what, what is the balance going to look like and that sort of thing? And, and there, there's just none. 
I'm going to go a different direction on just the way I thought when I woke up that morning and looked at the way markets responded. From the first time that I traveled to China, the reason I traveled to China is because I was reading in the newspapers about what foreigners viewed China as. And I wanted to go see it for myself. But there was also a very famous line that I think only ended probably in the last few years. And I think this was symbolic of it, which is you can't trust any of the data that China puts out. They put whatever number they want out, meaning there were no surprises. You couldn't trust anything on the data, but people just dealt with that from an investor standpoint. This was, to use Mike's word, brazen. This was meant for theater. And I think it just adds to the fact that you no longer can depend that China is the same China as it was before. And I viewed this as a very, very important moment. And it comes at a time when clearly they're under a lot of domestic pressure. But this is not the first incident. I just viewed this as, okay, how much certainty are we going to have in China over the next five years? So I viewed it as more as a gateway to more uncertainty rather than the day itself mattering. And I think the way markets responded, whether it was stocks or whether it was the currency, investors definitely had a similar feeling of what does this mean going forward? What does this mean going forward on a lot of different fronts? Can we just score some of these quickly and any impressions you have? Let's start with COVID zero. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously the proximal question for markets right now because, of course, it affects the sort of global demand picture. China is very important there. There's been a lot of rumors this week in particular about, you know, an eventual reopening plans and committees formed and these sorts of things. I mean, I think there's no question that eventually there'll be a reopening. It's the path there that really matters. And I personally don't see any significant proximal. And my definition of proximal would be the next couple of months. It's probably 2Q, 3Q of 23 is too far to to forecast there. But I don't see any significant changes coming. I think the, uh, you know, the evidence on the ground, even since the NPC, is supportive of that in terms of more lockdowns. And, and frankly, the pathway to an eventual reopening is probably not going to be heralded with telegraphing that opening in advance because it makes it that much more difficult to control things epidemiologically until then. So I'll take the other side of the tone that's been emerging since then and also point out that obviously the lockdowns are another means of control. And as we've been seeing for, frankly, all year, and control is something that Xi Jinping is heavily invested in at this time. All right, Mike, very interesting. What about property markets and sort of the overall health of the consumer? I think that there's a lot of evidence that there's significant bank support for the property sector, even though it's highly problematic and has to be restructured. I think the order to unlock the lending spigots has been given and the state-owned banks do what they're ordered to do. So I wouldn't bet on a pending collapse that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get animal spirits and the consumer and that sort of thing. But I think the property market's going to be just fine because the banks will support it. Anything surprising on Taiwan in your view? No. I think Taiwan is a useful ambition nationalistically on the horizon. And as we've talked about repeatedly, it's also useful for the U.S., both in constraining China and fomenting fear of a Russia is to Ukraine as China is Taiwan metaphor or simile, I guess. And then also, obviously, just in terms of the general U.S. v. China wherewithal in the defense community. And how about the U.S.-China tech divorce? I heard that Xi's speech mentioned innovation and technology this time around much more so than during the previous Congress. 
And I think there's no question that there is an acceptance of somewhere between heavy competition and conflict. It's really a question of where that needle ends up living. There were not quite overt, but nearly overt discussions of the U.S. as a foe, using some poetic language in, in one of his speeches, that to me continues to point to this is going to get meaningfully worse. And the U.S. continues to push that. I think actually the most eventful thing on this front had nothing to do with the NPC and was immediately before it, the October 7th activity that we talked about with, with Sultan as well, of the U.S. just significantly restricting both IP and chip flows into China. All right. Well, let's turn to the most talked about aspect to the NPC, the abrupt removal of Hu Jintao from the closing ceremony. Regardless of the intent behind what I think was a Orwellian scene, and who knows if we will ever actually know what the real story was there, do you believe that this incident will have a long-lasting impact on how the West views she and the PRC? I mean, is it one of those... I dare I say iconic moments, not iconic in a good way, but is it one of those moments that will be written about in the history books in years to come as a key point of insight that said the dynamic between how the West perceives China has changed in a long lasting way? I'm going to say yes to that. I'm just going to tweak the last part. I don't think Xi Jinping particularly cares how the West perceives. I mean, I don't think that was the focus, how the West perceives China. I do think the focus was his control is unconstrained by external consequence. And more importantly, and this is the really key part that I strongly agree with, his rule and power and legitimacy are unconstrained by precedent and what came before. In fact, if anything, his source of legitimacy is breaking from precedent and from, I'm sure it will be rewritten, and although it may be somewhat accurate, from the context that Hu Jintao created, right? And a lot of that, I think, is, is economic and, and on the common prosperity axis with respect to inequalities and corruption and, and a lot of these buzzwords. But I think it was a very, very intentional break with the past, both, I mean, the optic of you know, his predecessor being physically removed by, frankly, Hu Jintao. And then also with respect to personnel, like almost everyone associated with who is no longer a part of both the NPC and the standing committee. My conventional wisdom is that the domestic press was not allowed into the main hall. The foreign press was brought back in. This incident has been censored in China and that therefore it was for international consumption. But I don't think you agree with that, right? No, it, I think it's both. And by the way, one could argue that the most important audience in the room was the audience in the room. <laughs> you know, it's a very important signal about loyalty and about, you know, sort of forging a new path. The other leaders in that room are meant to fear she. I mean, if you're being ingenerous, like, I think as important as the image on whose face being escorted out, I think the image on she's face swatting him away like a petulant child who's annoyed by something was is equally important. And I, like, that's the message. So kind of audience be damned. <laughs> to me, that's the point. It really doesn't matter what the audience thinks here. What is meant to be happening, according to Xi Jinping thought, is what is going to happen 
and we'll deal with the consequences later. And the reason that is so important, including for markets, is that the several generations of leadership have been constrained by pragmatic considerations. And at least at the outset, this one is not. And that, as Jordy just mentioned, that creates a ton of uncertainty. It doesn't mean that every point about which we are uncertain right now will be resolved negatively. I'm not endorsing that view. But I believe that the uncertainty is intentional. I'm glad you mentioned markets. And just to ask a very basic, obvious question, but I I would love to just hear from you both on this. Why is Xi's dominance over the entire nation so market impactful? I'll start very briefly. I think it's including for international investors about which clearly the Beijing leadership cares less and less. We're trying to parse out whether there's a regime that has a few carrots to balance out the sticks from the perspective of FDI and from the perspective of the offshore credit markets and things like that. And we don't see any carrots at all. It appears to be all stick. So to me, that's the lens to look at she's dominance through. I'll just add one thing on this. And Mike and I have talked about, but this is just part of deglobalization. And the issue for deglobalization is that stock markets around the world, and when I say stock markets around the world, remember, it's been a U.S. centric stock market globally. We've taken over almost the entire market cap of MSCI world. It's been a tech dominance. And I have talked about this since last year when we started the podcast that I think it's a major inflection point for technology. Part of it is deglobalization and the birthplace for crypto comes out of this, which is the borderless internet. So I think she's dominance is just another part of whether you want to call it the populist movement, whether you want to call it nationalism, whether you want to call it the fight against the Gini coefficient, it all fits into it. So common prosperity, populism, all of these topics, they're not really great for stock markets. And if you kind of get through now COVID and you look at what the returns have been for stocks and even particular technology stocks since the end of 2019, we're not getting the same types of returns that we got for the major indices. And I think that's where this issue with Xi's dominance, it's going to have implications for a rotation in the market going forward, in my opinion. Let's talk a bit more about changes in the relationship between China and the West are clearly afoot, as you have described. Are they reflected the way they need to be, in your view, Jordy, as it relates to global asset risk premiums? Like, does the world get it yet? I think now, after this year, through the interconnections of things, it has. And I think you actually have to go back. So when Donald Trump takes over and tariffs begin... And there was speculation that the U.S. would change the tariffs this year, which has not occurred. If anything, we've gotten more forceful on the tech side. Europe was kind of on the periphery with this. You know, we had climate change. We're coming to agreements. But it's been a bad three years for China. Coming out of the tariffs, you still had the Hong Kong situation. Then, I mean, we can't forget where the beginning of COVID started. So it may still be going on in China. And I just want to say one thing about zero COVID. In the U.S., I think for the month of October, we had about 150,000 cases. So zero COVID is stupid. It's never going to happen. So anyone that doesn't think this won't be a part, unless he reverses course, we're still getting 150,000 cases a month here. So if they're in zero COVID allowing, it's just not going to happen. So that's going to hang over them for a period of time. And so then when you throw in what has happened now, which is, again, their economy is weakening. Unemployment rate for college graduates hit 20 percent in August. These are things that put them in a very difficult position. Now, 60 plus percent of nominal GDP 
is Europe, the U.S., and China. So I think it's been discounted this year that China's economy is weak. We obviously have the inflation partly was due to zero COVID, partly was due to the money that was printed. But at this point, I think we've taken risk assets down for a reason. And part of it is China's relationship. But I think one of the hidden unknowns for China's situation now is their connection to Russia means the relationship with Europe has changed this year, even if it's not directly certainly there's a different thought process on what's going to happen in China. And so when people start really focusing and they type in, there's a reason why JP Morgan in the first quarter this year said China was uninvestable. That was before the 20th party Congress. So we've got more data since then. We've got a different economy, but I think this has been brewing for a little bit longer than just this meeting. You mentioned inflation and I know we've covered this ground before, but I do think it bears repeating you're a long-term deflationista, Mike. I think you are as well. I am. So we're all in the same camp. But if you could, Jordy, just describe how even in keeping with that view, structural inflation in the U.S. could very well be higher on an ongoing basis because of what you have described between the West and China and the interplay with Russia, right? Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah. Again, I think deglobalization with printing presses is inflationary at the end of the day. I don't think the governments want recessions. I don't think they want job losses. But when you're trying to onshore businesses or put them in other places and you're doing CapEx, there's going to be parts of inflation which are just higher than what globalization brought. Globalization was one of the driving causes for long-term lower inflation, being able to find labor around the world that's cheaper. Well, that's over. And so it's just going to be harder. And I think it's going to make it more challenging. Certain aspects of China, right now they are exporting some deflation. And we've seen PPI numbers over the last three months, both in China and in the U.S., come down sharply negative. And I think there's going to be implications for it. But I do think when we say structurally higher inflation, we came out of a decade where China was growing slowly and where commodities were not going higher, and we've sat in the one and a half to 2% inflation area. I don't think commodities are going down anymore, even with China there. I do think next year China will find some way to stimulate the economy. I don't think it'll be a large gain, but their commodity demand's not going to change, and this is what they depend on the rest of the world for. So we've got supply issues on commodities because of various parts of structural issues. So for the next, as we've talked about, three to five years, I think inflation is going to be higher than the 2% target that the Fed has. I don't think it'll be anywhere near where it's been this year. So we'll start settling down for the next three to five years, but it's going to be higher than it was before. And do you buy into the argument that when China ultimately does come out of COVID lockdown, it will lead to significantly higher commodity prices? I see no indication that they're going to A, be able to come out of this. But I think, and Mike and I have talked about this internally, and I'm not sure we've gotten on this podcast. He can talk about his thoughts on this. But in traveling to China, one of the things about the prior decade is locals' confidence in the Chinese government was extremely high. They were able to handle every single problem. And one of the tools for that was to get the property market going higher, which is what everyone owned. They haven't been able to do that this year. So there's a loss of confidence that has happened in the government's ability to handle this. The connection to Russia and the threats over Taiwan, I just don't know where the certainty is. But I think one of the bigger issues is that number I gave you, which is college graduates and the inability to get jobs is a major problem. To have the unemployment rate of college graduates be 20 percent and it's just... 
these are things that I think they're having trouble with something that they didn't have trouble with before. And this comes almost directly from the regulatory crackdown. It comes from the China-U.S. tech divorce. But how are you going to solve these problems? And I think they've lost at this point some of the locals' confidence. Yeah, and that's not a stable equilibrium, obviously. And I think even with his newfound brazen claims to power, I think she very much realizes that. I completely agree with what Jordy just said. We talked a lot about certainty and confidence and all of this, and that has to change. I would say predictively that removing, whether it's gradual or sudden, the wet blanket that a zero COVID policy has had over the Chinese consumer and its job creation impacts, again, without predicting when that lifts or how suddenly or whatever, that's inherently inflationary, even if it, the transmission mechanism is only the demand side and the consumer side and it doesn't flow through the property market and bulk commodities and that sort of thing. So I do think that is one medium-term inflationist engine. And I think the other one, just to rearticulate what Jordy was saying, is deglobalization. It's not just the reversal of accessing cheap labor. It is also a requirement of the CapEx boom that we find ourselves in in the Americas, and that's just Norton. Well, I'd, I'm going to include at least Mexico alongside the U.S. and in parts of Europe, turning ourselves into independent producers of semiconductors of a number of other manufactured goods is not something you can just flip a switch and do. But to the extent we're trying to do it quickly because of the risk of being cut off from Chinese sources, it's very expensive to do so. And that to me is another inflationary force that comes out of all of it. So, Jordy, in your recent discussions with CIOs and allocators, what's going through their heads and what are you telling them about China's investability moving forward? Well, the interesting thing about that question, again, I'm going to go back to something I said a little while ago. So JP Morgan comes out early in the year and says China is uninvestable. They backtracked on that eventually, I think, because it, it probably brought a little... Uh, backlash with it. And these were all around the time of Russia invading Ukraine. And I think before we got into how connected China would eventually be thought of in this, but nearly half of foreign businesses are relocating away from Hong Kong or saying they're going to relocate away from Hong Kong. This was already going on. So when you're talking to pension CIOs, they're making decisions that they're not planning to move the other direction over the course of the next five to 10 years. Private equity was a big source of funds for pension investors in China. It was a great place for it. That's reversed. I mentioned that in the first quarter, I saw a number, I think Prequin put it out, that it was a 70% drop off from Q4 to Q1 in terms of private equity dollars into China. I don't know where the numbers stand because they're hard to track, but I do know this. We've all seen what's happened to US tech. We've seen what's happened to Chinese tech. I don't know where that money is going to go into now. So I think from an investable standpoint, if you're making decisions on the next three to five years, Russia was an indication that if you make an investment inside a country and then it invades another country, which is the threats we're hearing on a regular basis, those assets and those investments can be written down to zero very, very quickly. So you have to build more risk premium in, which means you have to demand more returns on it. And I don't know what industries you're going to find returns for that match up with the risk. In China. In China. So I think this is a, it was already uninvestable as a question. I think after the 20th Party Congress, if anything, it just made the situation worse. I would just add one thing to that. That kind of jump to zero or right down to zero is exactly the kind of binary problem. But with China, somewhat unlike Russia pre-invasion, there are two ways you could have an asset written down to zero or confiscated or whatever. One of them is endogenous and one is exogenous. It's the Chinese government saying, 
nope, you can't take that money out or you don't own that anymore. And then the other is U.S. sanctions. And they're both top of mind for investors now. So that's sort of a one-two punch between, the, as Jordy said, the Russia-China relationship, but then the more, well, I'll just use the word brazen again, the impact that that has on both of those sources of severe uncertainty. You've talked a lot in the morning meeting, Jordi, about this rotation and exodus of money out of China. Are you able to point to the evidence of capital flight showing up in the charts that you have seen thus far? This is a really important thing to me, especially coming out of the 20th Party Congress. So I want to kind of take everyone's through my path of getting there. I mentioned some things like China's uninvestable. Okay, Hong Kong businesses are leaving. CEOs of companies that I talk to say they're moving businesses out of there. So you already had this fear. You had the regulatory crackdown. And when a regulatory crackdown occurs, you don't all of a sudden go, oh, there'll never be another one again. You assume there'll be some change that happens that is dramatic and swift. So capital flight sounds more like people are just moving money out. I think the reality is there is not going to be money moving in. And when you stop seeing the money move in, you go, well, what would that mean? The currency is now down almost 13% year to date. You have to go back to the 90s and some serious times for them to where you can see that kind of decline. M2 in dollars is declining for the first year. You've got Alibaba, which was one of, if not the biggest IPOs for China and one of the biggest stories. It's back to its IPO price (laughs) and lower than it was where it closed the first day. So when you round trip something from 2014 on a business that no matter how bad their earnings are, they're far above where they were in 2014, you're building in more situations that people are diving out of this. I gave you the flows on the fund for private equity. You have no way to go through this and not see this happening. And to Mike's point, I think the most important thing rather than say capital flight is FDI into China from 2010 to 2020 was about 200 billion a year. FDI. Foreign direct direct investment. Thank you. So China was able to absorb that FDI and I'm not saying all of it's going to stop going in, but I do think it's much harder to make long-term investments, not only from a stock market, private equity basis, but from a corporate basis. And if that money starts flowing in there, it's going to flow to other places. Mexico, Brazil, Vietnam. These are the beneficiaries, you think? I think you can spend time on this. I will say, if people haven't noticed it, if you go look at the Mexican Bolsa, the local index, since the Monday coming out of the 20th Party Congress, we're now day 12 before the Fed meeting today, doing this on Wednesday. The Mexican Bolsa has had the third biggest rally over a 12-day period in the last decade. The currency is nearing the strongest point in the last year. You're starting to get a change, in my opinion, on the way people are thinking about the investment world if money's not going to flow into China. And I think this was more of a confirmation than anything else. Mike, anything to add there? Yeah, look, I would just point out that in addition to everything Jordy just said, that China is a almost artificial overweight in a lot of EM indices. So that rebalancing effect and the giant rotation sort of feeds on itself to some extent. And so in addition to all of these, I do think, you know, India, Indonesia, Brazil, also big beneficiaries. And just to re-impact the point, Mexico is an example, is sort of a double winner here. It's both a destination for CapEx and re-regionalization or friend shoring, as Janet Yellen says. So effectively the earnings. And then it's also from a flow of funds perspective, as well as from what's happening with the currency, you're inflating the multiple. So you're winning on both. And 
One last green marble. What about specific industries that will potentially benefit as the U.S.-China divorce proceeds or the West versus China divorce proceeds? Personally, I think the biggest impact is going to be in terms of the shifts towards higher nominal GDP. So I think the higher nominal GDP world, which means higher inflation, is going to be here for a long time. And so the sectors that to me are going to benefit, it's not good for tech to have higher rates and higher inflation. It's not good for tech with the multiples, given the fact that we're having an impact and China's a major player in the tech sector. You have to look at where the sectors are going to benefit. And unfortunately, this may sound boring, but financials, industrials, energy, healthcare, probably materials as well, although we'll have to see if they're able to get the housing market going because without the housing market going, it's going to be very, very challenging for the metals to be the same as energy. But I think those sectors, partly because they were hurt dramatically during the tech boom and when China wasn't not only not growing, but when they were funding kind of the tech movement or spending lots of money on it, I just think that as you come out of this, it's going to be a harder time for people on the headline indices. I don't expect the types of returns that we saw in the stock market from 2010 to 2020, meaning 15% a year type returns. I think for U.S. stocks, you have to be figuring at a much lower level, around the 6 to 8% level. But I think those sectors I mentioned, because they've got a lower PE, because they've got dividends, and most importantly, because their businesses can't be eaten up by technology, technology hopefully will enable them to still be more efficient in their businesses. But I think this unwind is going to take some time. And I think it is not good for the tech sector that China is going to be in this situation. I agree with that. I think basically anything that is benefiting from a strong dollar, and I think you can extrapolate even further from that and say the screen is high free cash flow yields. It's pretty easy. Back to basics. All right, gentlemen, this was great having you both on. Thank you so much. Let's do it again sometime. Great stuff, G3. Thanks, G3. Thank you. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.